tremendous blessing to our fellowship and uh, tonight. And so, Father, we do come tonight. We just ask that you would be uh, with Linda and Bob and Teresa and in, um, Teresa and Bob's daughter um, Sarah that has a new teaching job out at Clear Out at Ray driving in tonight. Um, that you would keep her safe and uh, Lord be with Angie. Um, uh, Cody, the grandkids, and Lord, uh, we thank you that um, that that Bob's father knows you, has had a long relationship with you, and has lived a long life. And um, we know that your word says that you hold every breath that we take in your hand. And so, Lord, we just give him to you. And in these times where, um, Lord, we know that a part of life is death, that we have everlasting life that comes through you, that you didn't leave us without hope, but we do have hope. And Lord, we just pray for Norma, and, and um, who's 81 and um, was seriously injured. We commit her to you, and we're thankful that she has a love for you and knows you. And we just pray you be with her family, and, and Lord, just minister to her according to your will. But that is for her to be healed, to bring healing to her. Um, but Lord, we know and we say, just as Paul did, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And only the Christian can say that because we go home to be with you. But Father, in the sorrow and the grief and the difficulties that you would just be working in the midst of family members and loved ones. And Lord, I pray that this fellowship, that we would have compassion and that Lord, that we would show support And, Lord, that we would show our love to these families. And, Lord, we just lift all this up to you. We do pray that tonight you'd help us be attentive to the things that you want to show us tonight. And, and Lord, prepare our hearts as we come to the communion table once again tonight as well. And, Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you uh, that we can study a book, a, a book that maybe perhaps the attitude of many Christians is it's not worth reading, but we know it is. And, Lord, we know we can make application as we go through these chapters tonight. So open our hearts to hear from you. Help us be attentive to you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. To remind you again at this time in our study in Deuteronomy that Moses is addressing the children of Israel for the last time before they go into the land of promise to possess the land. And they've been in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses has been faithful to lead the children of Israel through that desert and in the wanderings. And now they are poised on the east side of the Jordan River. They're ready to go in, except not quite spiritually. So Moses is giving them the law once again, this new generation that's going to go in. He's preparing them spiritually for when they go in and become a nation, God's nation, as they possess the land. And so Moses given this final address, and then at the end of the book, we will see that Moses will die there on the east side of the Jordan River, Mount Nebo. He will be buried in that area. They will mourn for 30 days. And in the book of Joshua, we will pick it up with Joshua leading the children of Israel across the river into the land to possess. And so Moses is instructing them. He's given them a history, an account of their history, what happened with their fathers coming out of Egypt. They knew the stories. And And they had some of them been small and young when all of this happened. But he's reminding them so they can be reminded of the goodness and the faithfulness of God, how God loved them and and carried them in his arms across the wilderness and gave them promises. And, And so they can learn from their history. And so he's telling them, as we concluded last time in chapter 9, how God had brought them to the mountain of God, made a covenant with them, and there was the people that saw the awesome presence of God in that where the Lord spoke to them in the mountain, from the mountain, as the mountain shook and it smoked like a furnace and thunders and lightnings, and they trembled. And they said, Moses, you go up on the mountain, according to the book of Exodus, as we saw in chapter 19 and chapter 20. Moses, you go up on the mountain because this is too much for us. And so Moses would go up on the mountain, and there he's there for 40 days and 40 nights. He's fasting. It's a supernatural fast. 
it's kind of interesting that when you see any time I see movies of, of Moses, it's kind of a stocky guy, Charlton Heston, or kind of a hefty guy. I think he was skinny as a rail as many times as he fasted and what he went through. But anyway, he's up there on the mountain when the people said, what has become of Moses? And they built that golden calf, and they danced around it nakedly and committed all kinds of idolatry and fornication. And God was very angry at the people. And so we read the account of Moses um, there being a mediator and interceding on behalf of the people. And so God would spare them. He did not wipe them out at that time. And it was Moses that was pleading the heart of God as he said, you know what, you made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they would be a great nation. And re, you know, remember your promise that you're going to bring them into the promised land. And so all these things that we saw as we were going through this. And so here is Moses giving that account once again to the children of Israel. And so they had sinned, and the father relented from his uh, anger, uh, and he is, did not destroy you at that time. And so chapter 10, at that time, the Lord said to me, Hew for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. Come up to me on the mountain and make yourself an ark of wood. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke, and you shall put them in the ark. So I made an ark of Achaia wood, hewed two tablets of stone like the first, went up on the mountain, having the two tablets in my hand. And he wrote on the tablets according to the first writings, the Ten Commandments, which the Lord has spoken to you in the mountain from the midst of the fire. In the day of the assembly, and the Lord gave them to me. Then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark, which I made. And there they are, just as the Lord commanded me. So you recall that the first time that, that Moses was up on the mountain, that the Lord, with the finger of God, would write the Ten Commandments on those two tablets of stones. And when Moses came down from that mountain and he saw the people committing idolatry and fornication, he threw the stones down, as we saw in chapter 9. He's given that account. And it broke the tablets. And so it symbolized what the children of Israel had done, and that is broken the covenant with God. They did not keep the law. And it's interesting, 40 days before that, they were trembling at the awesomeness of, of God and, and showing himself to the people, speaking to them from the mountain in the midst of the fire, as we see here. And, and they said, Moses, you go up in the mountain, and we will do what God tells us to do. And yet it's a short time after that that here they are committing idolatry, already breaking the first few commandments of having no other gods before me. Don't make any carven images before me. And so Moses breaking those tablets, it wasn't that he just lost control or had a moment. It was symbolizing that they had already broke that covenant with the Lord. And so here we see that Moses, after that, in chapters 32 of Exodus, you read about them dancing around that golden calf. Chapter 33, we would see that the Lord would say to Moses, then you're going to go and take them up to the border of the promised land. And it was Moses that would do that. But also we see some additional information here. And that was that the Lord told Moses, you make two more tablets. And it's interesting, two more tablets of stone, that is, that Moses would make those tablets of stones. There's no record of Moses doing that in the first set of tablets. It was the Lord that apparently made those tablets up there on the mountain, and Moses brought them down and broke them. But Moses, this time, you bring up the tablets. The Lord would write again the Ten Commandments with the finger of God. He would come back and put them in the ark. That is the Ark of the Covenant that was in the most holy place that we read about that piece of furnishing there in the book of Leviticus. The Ark of the Covenant, three things were in the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies and the Tabernacle. You guys probably already know what it is. We've gone over it. We went over it in the book of Hebrews. There was what? The jar of manna. There was Aaron's rod. And there was the Ten Commandments. And so on top of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. And so um, there it stood in the Ark, the Ten Commandments. And so verse 6 we read, Now the children of Israel journeyed from the wells of Beni Jehekin to Morserah, where Aaron died, and where he was buried in Eleazar, his son, minister as priest in his stead. So you recall that it was Aaron who was called to be the high priest. Aaron, the brother of Moses, the older brother by three years, and it would be the direct descendants of Aaron who would take the priestly office. Aaron would die at this place. His son Eleazar would be the high priest in his place. In verse 7, And from there they journeyed to 
Gud Goda, and from Gud Doga to Joth Batha, and the lands of rivers of water. And at that time the Lord separated the tribe of Levi to bear the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister to him, and to bless his name to this day. Therefore Levi has no portion nor inheritance with his brethren. The Lord is his inheritance, just as the Lord God promised him. So it would be the tribe of Levi. The direct descendants of Aaron would be the priests. They would do the priestly ministry described to us there in the book of Leviticus. So every priest was a Levite, but not every Levite was a priest because there was different families, as we saw in Numbers chapters 3 and 4, of the tribe of Levi. There was the Kohathites. The descendants of the Kohathites were the ones that would carry the Ark of the Covenant. They were to bear the Ark of the Covenant and other furnishings on their shoulders as they would move the tabernacle. Remember, the tabernacle was a temporary structure that would be broken down. It was the, Mer- uh, the Maronites and the Gershonites that would also have responsibilities. The Gershonites would be the ones that would take care of the curtains and, and the ropes. It would be the Maronites that took care of the boards and the pegs and all of this and carried them on the cart. So we saw that in the book of Numbers. And so the Levites, when they go into the promised land, they're not going to have an allotment of land given to them like the other 12 tribes. But they are given what? Certain cities, as you recall, as we ended the book of of Numbers, 48 cities are going to be established for the tribe of Levites so the Levites can live in those cities. And because they don't have land to grow crops and land to have animals, that is going to be the offerings that we're going to be seeing that are going to be given to the Levites to provide for them. So that's why the Lord here is saying, you know, they don't have an inheritance. I'm their inheritance so they can stand before me to minister to the Lord. They did not do the ministry of the priests, the priests who did the sacrifices and worked in the tabernacle. The, the Levites were only allowed in the tabernacle once the priests were done tearing things down and then they would cover up the furnishings. But they weren't allowed to go into the tabernacle to minister. Only the priests and then only the high priests behind the veil in the Holy of Holies. So all that that we've covered. In verse 10, at the first time I stayed in the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. The Lord also heard me at that time and the Lord chose not to destroy you. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, begin your journey before the people which that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. And so we know that it would be Exodus chapter 33 that Moses was told by the Lord Moses, go ahead and take the children of Israel into the promised land, but my presence is not going to go before you. And Moses was very concerned and brokenhearted over that. And you recall that it was Moses in that chapter that set up his tent outside the camp, the, the tent of tabernacle that he called it. It wasn't the tabernacle there in the camp, but he had his own tent there, and there he fellowship with the Lord. And it says in Exodus chapter 33, that the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And one of the things that we see about Moses is Moses was a man of prayer. He was a man that had a deep, intimate fellowship with the Lord. He spent time with the Lord, and he said, Lord, if your presence isn't going to go before us in the promised land, then I don't want to go. And I hope that's really all of our prayers, that, Lord, that I don't want to go anywhere even if this opportunity looks good or this looks like a good promise or whatever it is, if your presence isn't going to go before me, I want to follow you in my life. And wherever you are, I want to be. And that's essentially what Moses was saying. He was saying, Lord, I love you. I want to know you more. That's what he said in his prayer in that chapter. I want to know your grace. And if you're not going to go, then I'd rather sit out here in this hot desert than go into that land if your presence isn't going to go before me. And I know for me in my life, that I want to be exactly where the Lord wants me to be. And I don't want to go anywhere where he isn't leading me or guiding me to go to that place or that circumstance or that situation or opportunity that I may have. And so they would go up to the border of the promised land that we read in Numbers chapters 13 and 14. And there they failed to go into the promised land because of their disbelief, because the spies came back with a bad report. And that's where the Lord said that that generation was going to die out in the wilderness. And now here is this new generation ready to go in. So he's going to begin to talk to them once again about the essence of the law, about being obedient to the law. And so verse 12 we read, And now, Israel, what does the Lord God require of you? 
but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord, his statutes, which I command you today for your good. And so what does God require of his people? Well, first of all, to fear the Lord. That is to have a reverence and to honor him in our lives. Second of all, to walk in his ways. You don't walk in your own ways. You don't walk in the ways of the world. But you walk in his ways. And we're going to see that the Lord's going to say, as you walk in my ways, that you're going to experience that good life. You're going to experience that abundant life that Jesus promised to you and to me. And I hope that we get this down. I think that we are. We're being reminded of it an awful lot as we go through this book of Deuteronomy. And it's the whole of Scripture that God's ways are good. And they're the best ways for us. And we are to follow after his ways. His ways will not harm us or bring us into bondage or uh, to do us in. Um, God is not trying to be a killjoy in our lives. Uh, He desires to bless us and for us to experience the abundance of of just his blessings and joy and strength and, and, um, and just his peace as we walk in his ways and as we honor him in our lives. And then he says, serve the Lord with all of your heart and soul, given all to him in your life. Now we saw the great Shema in chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, didn't we? That we're to love the Lord with all of our hearts, soul, mind, and strength. And out of that, then you can serve the Lord with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But our motivation for serving him should be because of our love for him. And as we have talked about, that we have seen that obedience and love and having a heart for the Lord are closely connected. And again, we're going to be reminded of that as we continue on. And so as we have a heart for the Lord and a love for him, then we're going to desire to serve him. But really, I hope that our minds and our hearts are this, that we would serve the Lord, all of our heart, soul, minds, and strength. We will go through different seasons where we serve the Lord, different opportunities. The Lord will, you know, uh, move us on in different areas. But I pray that one thing, that we would never get to the point of our lives where we think, well, it's not important for me to be used of the Lord in any way. Or I've done my service, or I did this thing, or I served in the church, or whatever it may be. There's always something that we can do for the Lord that the Lord desires for us to be used of Him. And that is if it's just to be a light to other people, to pray for other people, wherever he has you, whatever opportunity he gives to you. But never think that you're done serving the Lord, that service is doing very simple things and just keep honoring the Lord with your life and being a witness to other people. But know that God desires for you to serve him all through the days of your life in the opportunities and the abilities that you have to be able to do what God has is giving you opportunities to do. But never get into the mindset. It's what I'm really trying to say of, well, you know what? I don't need to serve the Lord. I'll just, you know, just going to stick it in cruise control. And that's the end of that. We can be used in different ways to the people that are linked to us in our lives or within this ministry here or another ministry outside these four walls, whatever it might be. But the Lord desires to use us. And then we know that, fifthly, to keep his commandments. And it's for your good is what he says here. And again, to walk in his ways is for our own good. As we read in verse 14, Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth with all that is in it. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples as it is this day. And so here again, I am the Lord, and I am the the, um, one who has loved you, and I am the one that chose you, And I am the one that has chosen you above all the other peoples. And so one thing that I hope, again, that we remember um, that the Lord loves us and never doubt the love of the Lord. And he has chosen us. Why he has chosen me, I don't know. I just rejoice in it. He loves me. I know that. And, And I am so thankful that the Lord, the way that he sees me, knowing that his love is constant and perfect and unchanging towards me, So never doubt the love of the Lord, because here he's saying to them, know this, guys, know this, that the Lord delights in you, and we should know that as well. And he chose you, and he loved you. Now, what did we see a few chapters ago when Moses was given an account again when the children of Israel were murmuring, not wanting to go into the promised land 38 years before this? What they were murmuring in their tents was, God hates us. And God wants to destroy us out here in the wilderness. They had such a wrong view of the heart of God towards them. 
And it's so important that you and I understand what the heart of God is towards us, that he delights in us and that he loves us and that his love remains with us. So never doubt his love for you and for me. And so in verse 16, Therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and the Lord of lords, a great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. Therefore love the stranger for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him, and to him you shall hold fast and take oaths in his name. He is your praise, he is your God, who has done for you these great and awesome things which your eyes have seen. And then verse 22, your fathers went down to Egypt with 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as the stars of heaven in multitude. So what he's saying to them, that I am your God, and I am the God of gods, and I am the Lord of lords. And I am the God who is great and mighty and awesome. Show no partiality, so make sure how it is, and he's going to give further instructions how it was that they were to um, remember the stranger and treat the stranger and the widows and the poor and also the, um, the orphans. And as we have seen already going through what the Lord has told them, that he had a heart for the poor and the widows and the fatherless and, and for the stranger. He said, remember, you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And so we'll look at more what the Lord has to say concerning them. But he also is saying to them that you would circumcise, and I like what it says here, I think verse 16 is worth underlining, that you circumcise the foreskin of your heart. And again, we see that the Lord's desire for them is to have a heart for him. Now, we know that the covenant of circumcision came to the children of Israel there in the book of Genesis with Abraham. Abraham was told that all his descendants, the male children, in the eighth day was to be to circumcise, the cutting away of the foreskin, and it was to mark them that they were God's people. And so as they kept that covenant, what happened over time was that it just became something, a ritual to where they did that, and they thought, we're God's people because we cut away the foreskin, the flesh. And what the Lord telling them here is something that is important for us to understand, and that is, he says, I want you to circumcise your heart. That is, I want you to have a heart for me. I want you to cut away the f- any fleshly things that are in your heart. When you go into the land, make sure that your heart is set on me and a love for me that's going to enable you and keep you in keeping my commandments. But circumcise your heart. It was the same message that we see that the Lord would speak to Jeremiah to give to the children of Israel, or that is the house of Judah, right before they would go into the Babylonian captivity. It would be Jeremiah that said, God declares you are to circumcise your hearts. You may be physically circumcised, cutting away the foreskin, but you need to circumcise your heart. And I pray that all of us, that we would pray, Lord, circumcise my heart. Lord, I want to cut away all those fleshly things, those things that are unlike you, to have a real heart for you, Lord. To just love you and to believe in you and to have a desire to walk in your ways. The circumcision of the heart. And it's interesting, though, that this generation, we're going to see in the book of Joshua, when they go across the, the Jordan River, they're not going to go to war immediately against Jericho. What they're going to do is stop, and that new generation is going to be circumcised. They hadn't gone through that. And so all the males are going to be circumcised, and of course they have to wait a certain amount of days to heal before they would go to war. But the Lord is saying there has to be a cutting away of the flesh before you're going to have victory in the Spirit. And it's true with you and me. So circumcise your hearts and know that I am the God of gods and I am the Lord of lords, the great God, the only God as he has declared. I do not understand for the life of me why any pastor or Bible teacher would get behind the pulpit as there's more and more these days and saying, well, Jesus, and put him on the same level as other religious leaders. Because here the Lord declares that I am the God of gods, the Lord of lords. And Jesus, he is the king of all kings. He is the Lord of all lords, isn't he? And when he comes back to establish his kingdom in the second coming of Jesus Christ, that he's going to be the one that's going to be sitting on the throne. It's not going to be any other religious leader. 
And so Jesus is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. The scripture very clearly declares that. And I cannot believe for the life of me why anyone would stand behind the pulpit and say, well, Jesus is just another religious leader. He is the King of Kings and the Lord of all lords. And the book of Hebrews that we went through chapter by chapter and verse by verse over the summer, and we just finished a few weeks ago, that was a powerful epistle, wasn't it? To show you and I very clearly, without any doubt, that Jesus is superior to any religious leader, to any religious system, that his sacrifice was sufficient to take away sin, that Jesus is the one that gives us access to the Father, just as he would say that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And when he comes back and sits on the throne, he is not going to be sharing that throne with any other religious leader. He's going to come back as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So we exalt his name, and it reminds me of so much of what we're going to see on Sunday morning in Philippians chapter 2, as we are going to see the example of Jesus, his humility, and not um, being one counted it um, robbery to be equal with God. He, he is one that he very clearly claimed to be God, the Son of God, equal with God. The religious leaders understood that. But he would humble himself. He would take on the appearance of a servant. He would come in the form of a man and a bondservant, and he would become obedient to the death. That's what we're going to see here, the death on the cross. But then, as he would be resurrected, as he rose from the grave, he ascended into heaven. We know that he sits at the right hand of the Father. And so Philippians chapter 2 says, Now he has been highly exalted to where every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is the Lord. To the glory of God the Father. And that his name is above every other name. And you see, you and I that are here, that we have confessed of faith and a free will and a love for the Lord, that Jesus, you did die for me. That God incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ came to be a servant, went to the cross and died for my sins and rose again from the grave three days later. And you sit at the right hand of the Father. You are indeed the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So we have the promise of heaven. But every knee that is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, as Philippians chapter 2 says, will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father that his name is above every other name, and they will be forced to do it even if they have rejected Christ. And it's not talking about universal salvation. It's talking about that there's going to come a time, even those who have rejected him, at the great white throne judgment of Revelation chapter 20, where they will have to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is the Lord of all lords, he is the King of all kings, and that his name is exalted and above every other name. Praise God that we have done that. If by chance there's anybody that's here in the coffee shop that you haven't done that, I pray that you would do that before you leave here tonight. That you would give your heart to Jesus Christ and understand that He is your only salvation. That He is the Son of God. That He died for you. That His name is above every other name. He's your only hope. Submit your heart. Surrender completely to Him. Because those who don't one day are going to have to, they're going to be forced to acknowledge that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of all lords. And so here he says that I am the God of gods in chapter 11. Therefore, you shall love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his judgments, and his commandments always. Know today that I do not speak with your children who have not known, the, who have not seen the chastening of the Lord your God, his greatness and his mighty hand and his outstretched arm, his signs and his acts, which he did in the midst of Egypt to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to all this land, what he did to the army of Egypt and to their horses and their chariots, how he made the waters of the Red Sea overflow them as they pursued you, and how the Lord has destroyed them to this day, what he did for you in the wilderness until you came to this place. And so again, he's telling them, you shall love the Lord your God, keep his charge and his statutes. Again, connecting that love with obedience. And also he says, you know how I've worked in your midst, how I freed you from Egypt. And then in verse 6, and what he did to Dathan and Abraham, the sons of Eliad, the son of Reuben, how the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, their household, their tents, and all the substance that was in their possession in the midst of all of Israel. And so here he's recounting that time when it would be Dathan and Abram. You recall 
in Numbers chapter 16, they would come being led by Korah. Korah led this rebellion with Dathan and Abram. They were from the tribes of Reuben, Dathan and Abram, as Moses says. Korah was from the tribe of what? Levi. And he came leading these leaders and 250 other leaders from the congregation of Israel, and they challenged Moses' ministry and Aaron's ministry, challenging their authority. They said, you guys take too much upon yourself, Moses and Aaron. You know, all of us are holy. And and so they were particularly, Korah was challenging Aaron in being the high priest. He wanted to be the high priest, Korah. When God had chosen Aaron, and so that's where the whole thing came about in chapter 17 of Numbers, where Aaron's rod butted, showing the people that I have chosen Aaron to be the high priest. But Korah challenged that. They came with this spirit of rebellion, and so did Dathan and Abram. And so the Lord opened up the earth and swallowed them up. And that was the end of them and their families. And so the result of this rebellious spirit, and as we looked at that, again, we can be reminded, us in the church, and and we're touching on this in Philippians chapter 2 as well, because we're going to see that Paul's going to say in chapter 2, do all things without murmuring and complaining and disputing. And here were these guys coming, arguing and complaining and murmuring and disputing, and they got swallowed up. And if we are ones that that's our spirit and that's our attitude, that we are ones that like to dispute and be rebellious and have that rebellious spirit in the workplace or wherever it might be where we like to dispute a lot, you're just going to end up being swallowed up. You're just going to be swallowed up by I don't know what. I don't think the earth's going to open up and swallow you up. But just in being negative, you're going to be swallowed up in being in you know, just down and discouraged all the time, it will just overwhelm you. And it will rob you of your joy. It will rob you of your joy. I don't think there is a single person that when they're murmuring and complaining that they say, oh, I just have so much joy in my heart right now. I know it isn't for me because I can murmur and complain like anybody else. But it will just simply rob you of your joy and it will swallow you up and just negativity, and just discouragement, and other people as well, that you're affecting. And so here he, he recounts how the Lord chastened them and brought judgment to them. And, and then in verse 7, But your eyes have seen the very great act of the Lord which he did. Therefore you shall keep every command which I command you today, that you may be strong and go in to possess the land which you cross over to possess, and that you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord swore to give to your fathers, to them, and their descendants, a land flowing with milk and honey. For the land which you go to possess is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and gathered it by foot and as a vegetable garden. But the land which you cross over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water from the rain of heaven. And in verse 12, a land for which the Lord your God cares. The eyes of the Lord your God are always on it from the beginning of the year to the very end of the year. And it shall be that if you earnestly obey my commandments, which I command you today, to love the Lord your God and serve him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, then I will give you the rain for your land in its seasons, the early rain and the latter rains, that you may gather in your grain, your new wine, your oil, and I will send grass in your fields for your livestock that you may eat and be filled. Hey, the land that I'm given to you is a good land. It is a prosperous land. It's not like Egypt. Now, you go to Egypt today, 95% of Egypt is desert. It's only along the Nile River and some of the, the tributaries that come into the Nile where it's fertile. And so there, there isn't a lot of opportunities for them to, to be able to grow and have agriculture. They do have some, again, along the Nile River and the river bottoms. But the rest of it is desert. In Israel, you go there today, you see it's very fertile. There's hills and there's lands and there's forests. And, and the Lord is saying, listen, I'm going to give you orchards. I'm going to give you wheat fields and grain fields. I'm going to give you olive trees. And I'm going to send the rain as you keep my commandments. And the latter rains so that you can have abundant crops and the land will produce and you'll see that I'm blessing you. Now we're going to see that he's going to say, take heed to yourself in verse 16, lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside to serve other gods and worship them, lest the Lord's anger be aroused against you. And he shut up the heavens so that there would be no rain and the land yield no produce and you perish quickly from the good land which the Lord has given you. When we get to chapter 28, we're going to see 
is kind of a preview that the Lord is going to give the blessings and the cursings there. The blessings, I'll give you the land. It will produce. It will be well with you. I'll send the rains if you keep my commandments. If you go after other gods and you are disobedient to me, then what's going to happen is I'll dry up the land. And we see in their history, as you go through particularly First and Second Kings and even First and Second Chronicles, it talks about the house of Judah in those two books. And then as you look at the books of the prophets, they speak a lot of times about drought that would come and the locusts that would come and eat of the crops because God was keeping that, that covenant here that he said, if you disobey me, and they did, they would go off into idol worship after the reign of Solomon and the reign of Jeroboam. Uh, Rehoboam and then the nation split in two that the Lord would send the droughts he would send the locusts to try to get them to turn back to him and the prophets Jeremiah and the others would come on the scene Isaiah and say the Lord is trying to get your attention turn back to him and repent and receive healing in the land and so here he's given them when you go in know that this is what's going to happen as you are walking in obedience And I think for you and for me, the key, if anything, that remember this, that as we walk in obedience, there is blessing. There really is. And if you walk in disobedience, there are consequences, negative consequences. And it goes back to what Paul would write in Galatians. Whatever a man sows, so shall he reap. If you you sow seeds to the spirit of the spirit, will reap everlasting life. If you sow seeds to the flesh of corruption, you shall sow. And it's true. None of us are exempt from that. So the seeds that you're planting today, there's going to be a crop that's going to come up. So we want to be planting seeds that are good and walking in His ways. And seeds of the Spirit is what we want to plant. But not walking in disobedience because of the flesh corruption will be what it is that you're going to reap. And it's so true. The consequences and the repercussion of sin. It's terrible. And so here he's given them this, this commandment to them. And, and then he says in verse um, uh, 18, Therefore you shall lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul and bind them as a sign in your hand, and they shall be as frontlet between your eyes. And you shall teach them to your children, speaking of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and of your gates, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give them like the days of heaven above the earth. So we've already seen this, haven't we? Chapter 6, and we saw that um, in the loving the Lord, keeping his commandments, teaching it to their children uh, in the home. When they lie down, their home should have the atmosphere of the things of God and the word of God, and then writing it uh, um, on you know, their, their hearts, uh, doorposts of their homes, um, and uh, also um, they were to be a frontlets between your eyes and on your hands. That's where you see the phylactyls of the Orthodox Jews on their heads, a little box that has the Ten Commandments in them, and then on their wrist, that's what they do. They get it from here, Deuteronomy, and then the little muzzles that they have on the doorposts. If you go to Israel, um, if you go with this, and hopefully we can go soon and plan another trip, when you go to the hotels, you see the little muzzle there on the doorposts. You know, when you walk in your room, that's the Ten Commandments. That's where they get all this. In verse 22, For if you carefully keep all these commandments, which I command you to do, to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and hold fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations from before you and you will dispossess greater and mightier nations than yourselves. And every place in which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours from the wilderness of Lebanon, from the river, the river Euphrates, even the western sea shall be your territory. And no man shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will put the dread of you and the fear of you upon the land where you tread just as he has said to you. And behold, I have set before you today a blessing and a cursing. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way, which I command you today to go after other gods, which you have not known. Now it shall be when the Lord your God has brought you into the land, which you go to possess, that you shall put the blessing on Mount Gerasim and the curse on Mount Ebal. And they are not on the other side of the Jordan, setting this towards the setting sun in the land of the Canaanites who dwelt in the plain opposite Gilgal beside the terebinth trees of Morah. 
For you will cross over the Jordan and go in to possess the land which the Lord your God has given you, and you will possess it and dwell in it. And you shall be careful to observe all the statutes and judgments what I have set before you today. So this is all going to be detailed when we get to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Mount Garrison, the Mount of Blessing, and associated with fruitful harvest, and then Ebal, the Mount of were Cursings, and associated with barrenness. And so we will see that take place. And then chapter 12, real quick. Well, we got plenty of time, don't we? These are the statutes and judgments, which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the Lord God of your fathers has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. And you shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains, on the hills, and under every green tree. And you shall destroy their altars, break the sacred pillars, burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. And you shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. And so here the Lord again is telling them that, listen, that when you go into the land, do not get involved with those places of idol worship. Get rid of them, the sacred pillars, the high places. Destroy them. Don't have anything to do with those false places of worship with the Canaanite gods. And so get rid of them. You shall not have anything to do with such things. In verse 5, but you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place, and there you shall go. And there you shall take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your heave offerings of your hand, your vowed offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks, and there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice in all to which you have put in your hand to in your household in which the Lord your God has blessed you. And you shall not at all do as, as we are doing here today, every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For as yet you have not come to the rest and the inheritance which the Lord your God has given you. This is what's going on. The Lord is saying, listen, when you go going to take the promised land, I'm going to have a prescribed place of worship. Now, here in the wilderness wandering, they had the tabernacle, didn't they? And at the tabernacles where they brought their sacrifices. And, and it was easy for them because you had three tribes on the north side, three on the east side, south side, and west side that were camped. And the tribe of Levi in the middle, and Moses and Aaron and the priests. But when you get into promised land, you're going to have all this land. So I don't want you guys just doing your own thing. I don't want you doing what the Canaanites did, and that is just having any place where they sacrifice all their animals before they ate an animal. So what he's saying to them is you have a prescribed place that I'm going to give to you. Now, when they went into the promised land, it would be Bethel that the tabernacle rested for a while, and then it would be Shiloh, and there at Shiloh they would go into the days of the judges up until the time of Samuel. So that's where the tabernacle was. Very fascinating place. If you go to Israel... You can't go there today, but I had opportunity to go there, I believe in 98, uh, was the time to, that I was able to go to Shiloh and see where the tabernacle was and where um, they were doing excavations where they believed the tabernacle sat. It's very fascinating to, to think that that's where the tabernacle was at one time. But you can't go there today because of the political situation. It's in Samaria or what is today called the West Bank, and so they won't let you go there because of... Um, they just won't take you in there. So anyway, that's where it was. But the final place where the temple was going to be built, of course Solomon would build it, and then the second temple was Jerusalem. So that prescribed place is where you're going to bring your animals. So that's what he's telling them. And so verse 10, But when you cross over the Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God has given you to inherit it, and it gives you rest from all your enemies round about so that you dwell in safety, then there will be the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. And there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand, and all your choice offerings which you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God and your sons and your daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levite who is within your gates, since he has no portion, no inheritance with you. And so we see here, again, he's telling them that here's a place for a corporate meeting, so you're not doing your own thing. Remember the Levites. They would give to the Levites to provide for them because the Levites didn't have the land and the herds of animals. So they didn't have that inheritance. But we read in 
Verse 13, take heed to yourself that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every place that you see, but in the place where the Lord chooses, and in one of your tribes, you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I command you. I think what we can get from this today is, is that corporate worship and gathering is important to the Lord. There are some who say, well, I don't need to go to church or belong to a body of believers. I can just go up any place and I can just sit in the hills on the mountain and I can just, that's going to be my church. And I understand that going to church doesn't save you. But the Lord does have a lot to say about the body of Christ and being a part of the body of Christ and serving in the body of Christ. In Hebrews chapter 10, don't forsake the assembly of ourselves together, is what the writer would write, as in the matter of some, especially as you see that day approaching. What day? You see the return of the Lord coming. So it is God's commandment that we not forsake the assembly of ourselves together. I understand that listening to a Bible study isn't going to save you. I understand that going to church, Calvary Chapel can't save you. But what the Lord is saying here is my desire is that you gather together corporately a place where there is worship and there is sacrifice taking place that is given unto the Lord, a sacrifice of praise, a sacrifice of, of service to him, that you corporately come together a place where you can hear the word of God. And it delights the Lord when we do that. It delights for you guys to come out on a Wednesday night going through the book of Deuteronomy. It blesses him as you get instructed, as we come and worship. So it's important to the Lord that we continue to be ones that, that we're you know, in a place where we come together, where together corporately we can come and worship. And, and so, yeah, if you want to go off and do your own thing, and you can sit in the mountains and you can meditate on the Lord. There are times where we can do that. But don't forsake the assembly of ourselves together is the commandment. And so he would go on and say, however, verse 15, you, you may slaughter and eat meat within all your gates, whatever your heart desires, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you, the unclean and the clean may eat of it, of the gazelle and the deer alike. Only you shall not eat the blood, you shall pour it on the earth like water. So what he's saying is don't be like the pagan you know, rituals where every animal that they ate, they sacrificed to the Lord. What the Lord is saying is you bring your animal, you bring your sacrifice as prescribed at the feast that I prescribe, to the place that I prescribe, in the manner that I prescribe to you. You don't have to do that with every animal. So he's going to say here in verse 17, you may not eat within your gates the tithe of your grain or your new wine of your oil, the firstborn in your herd of your flocks, or any of your offerings which you vow for your freewill offerings, but of the heave offerings in your hand. But you must eat them before the Lord your God in the place which the Lord your God chooses, you and your son and your daughters, your male servants, your female servants, and a Levite who is within your gates. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all to which you put your hands. So the prescribed sacrifices, you're going to bring it to the place I prescribed to you. And in verse 19, take heed to yourself that you do not forsake the Levite as long as you live in the land. And when the Lord your God enlarges your borders as he has promised you, and you say, let me eat meat, because you long to eat meat, you may eat as much meat as your heart desires. I like that. Just bring those cows. Keep them coming. Those. And if the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far from you, then you may slaughter from your herd and, not, and from your flock, which the Lord has given you, just as I commanded you. And you may eat within your gates as much as your heart desires. So what he's saying again, simply, listen. You don't have to bring every animal to be sacrificed. Just at the appointed times, the firstborn and what we've gone over. Just as the gazelle and the deer are eaten, so you may eat them. The unclean and the clean alike may eat them. Only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life. You may not eat the life with the meat. You shall not eat it. You shall pour it on the earth like water. Again, that was a Canaanite pagan ritual where they drank the blood. They didn't bleed out the animal. The Lord says you're not going to be that way. And then verse 25, you shall not eat it, that you may go well with you and your children after you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. Only the holy things which you have and you vowed offerings you shall take and go to the place which the Lord chooses. And you shall offer your burnt offerings, the meat and the blood, on the altar of the Lord your God. And the blood of your sacrifices shall be poured out on the altar of the Lord your God. And you shall eat the meat. Observe and obey all these words which I command you. And it may go well with you and your children after you forever when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. And then beware of false gods as we finish here. 
the chapter, when the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess, and you displace them and dwell in their land, take heed to yourself that you're not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you, that you may not inquire after their gods, saying, How did those, these nations serve their gods? I also will do likewise. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abomination to the Lord which he hates they have done to their gods, for they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. And whatever I command you, to be careful to observe it, that you shall not add to it nor take away from it. And so here we see again that the Lord is saying, don't get involved with those gods. Do not pass your sons through the fire. That's what they did with the worship of Moloch. It's interesting that it was Solomon. We hear about the wisdom of Solomon. But you look at 1 Kings uh, chapter 11, verse 7, and Solomon built a temple to Moloch. It was Ahaz, the king of Judah, that passed his sons through Moloch. It was also Manasseh that did the same thing. The northern kingdom of Israel got involved with the worship of Moloch right before their captivity. And the Lord says, no. It was a great sin of the nation. We need to pray for our nation because the great sin of the nation is the death of the unborn. Over 50 million. And I pray that as a nation we would repent. And understand the value and the sanctity of life that God gives very clearly in His Word. And that we would be ones that we would be praying. And that we'd be praying for a nation and the hearts of the people of this nation would change. And I know that there's forgiveness, and there is. And there's healing of the emotional scars of those who have been involved in such thing. I praise God for that. But I pray that we would understand how valuable that God sees the life of the unborn. How he says that you are wonderfully made and put together. And I knew you in your mother's womb. And he speaks about that in life, that child. So I pray that we would come to a place where we're praying for a nation and praying about these things because it's the great sin of a nation to see what has happened over all these years, a whole generation now, of millions and millions of unborn that have been put to death. And so, Father, we do. We do pray, Lord, for our nation. And Lord, just as the house of Israel and the house of Judah sacrificed their children in the arms of Moloch, yet today, as we see that millions of unborn children being put to death, Father, we pray that our nation would repent and the hearts of people would be changed that people would come to know the sanctity and the value of life, the unborn child. And Lord, I do pray that we would be ones, that Christians, that we would be light. And you know, I thank you, Lord, for those who so many were out on the life chain on Sunday, as I heard, and, and making a stand for righteousness, and that we would make that stand as well. And Father, I thank you that we can come to give, be ones that are living sacrifices.